Well, we are in our last sermon in our series this summer on the Psalms. And um, it's a little sad because I love the book of Psalms so very much. But it's also sad because it means that the summer is over. Uh, Many of you are going back to school, and, and this can be a little bit of a sad experience. It's really hard to let go of summer. Um, especially if you're students. Parents, however, usually feel just the opposite. They think it's the best time of year. When I was growing up, I, was al- I always wondered why my mom sang the Hallelujah Chorus every late Labor Day weekend. But you know, after being cooped up for most of 18 months, I'm pretty, much, I'm pretty certain that most of us are happy to get back to something of a regular routine. So here we are in our last Sunday for the fall, uh, before the fall. So we're looking at Psalm 24 today, and the first thing that we learn about this psalm is that it's from David. Now, as Pastor Jim shared with us last week, some psalms we know the occasions for, and others we really don't, and some we can make a pretty good guess. Many believe this psalm connects to the time that David was transporting the ark to Jerusalem, where he he would establish his kingdom. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, or if you're familiar with Indiana Jones, you know what the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant is. It's a golden wooden chest where God's personal presence was enthroned between two cherubim. And because David is a man after God's own heart, he wants God's personal presence to be with him in the city of Jerusalem, the center of his kingship. We read about this story in 2 Samuel 6. We won't turn there, but let me briefly talk about this by way of background. It's quite a gripping story. You see, the transport the ark, David puts it on a cart pulled by oxen, and he, along with 30,000 men, start the procession to Jerusalem. Just imagine, you have the king of Israel with 30,000 of his strongest warriors, with the presence of God the Creator being pulled along on a wagon to the city of David. Well, David's parade planning had some flaws. The oxen were a bit clumsy, and to save the ark from falling, a man by the name of Uzzah puts his hand out to try to support the ark, and just like that, God takes his life away. And the Bible says this, the anger of the Lord kindled against Uzzah. Well, that wasn't in the plans. And David got angry with God. But then his anger converts to fear because he realizes just what happened. He asked the question, who can the ark, or sorry, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You see, like the oxen, David made a misstep with God. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. God chose him to be king, but he learns you cannot keep God in a box. God wants to be near, but you cannot pull him along any way that you see fit. God is God. God says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other That's the background for this psalm. And this story raises an important issue for all of us to consider today. What will you do with God when he acts outside of your expectations? 
when he not only thinks outside the box, but acts outside the box. You see, the line between faith and the rejection of God is so thin sometimes. After Uzzah dies, David entertains both possibilities. Why do people so often leave the faith? Because God, God permits something that is outside of their expectations. Why do people come to faith? Because God shows up in a real way outside of their expectations. I wonder if the expectations you have put on God and that I've put on God blocks us from seeing the God who is there for us. Like David, we need to realize just what kind of God we're dealing with. And Psalm 24 is gonna help us do that this morning. We wanna see not only the God, not the God of our own making, but the God who created us. So from this text, we're gonna see three lessons about God's character. The first is, we're gonna have to know God's creative power. Second, we're gonna have to see God's holy presence. And third, we're gonna have to believe in God's victorious power. So let's go ahead and take, take a look at the first lef- lesson. We have to see God's creative power. That's what we see in verses one and two. Psalm 24 begins in this way. The earth is the Lord's and all that fills it, the world and those that dwell therein. God has a claim on all that exists. Everything exists because of God. There is God and then there's everything else because of God. The first thing we teach our children about God is that he is the, is that he is the creator of everyone and everything. The opening verses in our psalm calls our attention back to the opening verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's been said that if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, then the rest of faith will follow. If God is the creator, he can do all things. This is the first act of faith, we might say. Now, of all the things Christians believe about God, this really is probably the least controversial. Most people can grant that there is a supreme being who made the universe. But this is widely misunderstood. When the Bible teaches that God is the creator, it isn't merely that he is the first cause before all causes, the first being that gets things started in our universe, but rather it's the belief that God the creator is worthy of worship. The fact that God is creator is worth singing about. It's worth putting to poetry. We heard it this morning in our call to worship. Psalm 95, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We hear it in Psalm 96, 5, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. To know God's creative power is to be moved to worship. Now, given David's context, David's claim about the God of Israel 
is quite bold. He says something about God that is beyond expectations. You see, other nations uh, believed in many gods who created the world, but David says there is one God who made all things. Other religions believe the earth and the seas uh, were born out of a cosmic struggle between gods. But David shows us in verse 2, it is the God of Israel who subdues the raging waters and firmly places the earth on the dry ground. The earth is secure because God is its creator. Creation is not born from a struggle, but from God's strategy. The way that the God of Israel creates compared, compared to other gods stirs up David to worship. But let's also consider this. Let's consider how God creates compared to how we make things. Everything we create depends on the materials we have. Whether it's building a house, cooking, cooking from a recipe, or writing a song, we need stuff to create things. And not only do we need stuff to create, we have to create things out of necessity. We need a house to live in. We need food to eat. We need music for enjoyment and expression. We create out of need. But none of this is true for God. The Bible teaches us God depends on no one. And he needs nothing to create. In fact, nothing is what he uses to create everything. We create things out of need. But why does God create? He creates because of his gracious love. Every blade of grass, every bird in the air, every squirrel running around in your garden eating your tomatoes exists because God loves. Makes you think twice about getting that electric fence, doesn't it? The fact that you are, not you are the best, not that you are the most attractive, not that you are the hardest worker, but simply the fact that you are is an expression of God's love. You see, other people have regard for us because of what you know, because of what we can do, because of what we can give but your very existence proceeds from God's love. Now as Christians, our belief that God creates out of love is even bolder than this. Paul writes this in Colossians 1, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. The same love from Jesus that healed the sick, that made him give up his life on the cross for us, is the same love that created the world and holds the universe together. In my office, I have a print of a medieval map of the world, and my daughters know just enough geography to know that the map is completely useless. It is horribly inaccurate. I don't even think it has one continent on there. 
And they love to tell me, Dad, he gets nothing right, gets nothing right, yeah. But he gets the most important thing right. Because at the bottom of this map are two feet. And on the east and on the west ends are hands. And at the top of the map is the face of the creator Christ. In him, all things, the world, the universe itself, holds together. Now, if David's view of God before Christ led him to worship God for his creative power, how much more, how much more now that we've seen the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Like David, wouldn't you want this God close to you? Wouldn't you want this creator on your side? We need God to be this close to us. But there is a problem. The Lord of life strikes us a dead. We can't get too close. He was just a guy that was trying to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from breaking. And God strikes him down. And that's not what David was expecting. Wouldn't you also get angry at God? But this teaches us the second lesson about God's character from the psalm. We must not only know his creative power, we must see his holy presence. That's the second lesson we see in verses three through six. Yes, God creates and upholds his creation out of love, but verse three asks this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Here David has in mind the holy hill of Mount Zion, the place where God dwells in a special way. Holiness in the Bible is closely linked to the idea that God is our creator. Holiness is what makes him unique from all, that, all else that exists. It describes his purity. It describes his moral perfection. There is none like God. Everything that we can say about God about his character, about what he does, is defined by his holiness. To try to understand this just a little bit, some liken God's holiness to the sun in its rays. The sun in its rays is what gives source to life. It is good. Without the sun, we would not exist. And yet, if you get too close to the sun, you won't exist. Yes, God is love, but even his love is holy love. And unless we ourselves are holy, we can never approach a holy God. And that's why in verse four, what we have here are characteristics of the person who would dare approach a holy God. The only one who could approach a holy God is one with the clean hands, a, one, a person who acts purely, they never use their hands to harm another person. They never click or look at things on the internet that they shouldn't look, look at. They don't take things that belong to them. But deeper than that, everything they do comes from a pure heart. Nothing they do is tainted with mixed motives. They don't say to a person's face what they would never say behind their back. 
that's flattery. They don't say behind a person's back what they don't say, what they would never say to a person's face. That's gossip. At the core, they don't lift up their souls to another. They feel at home with the love of God, and they don't run off to try to find another fix. When it comes to money, they don't love money and God, they love God. And so whatever is in their bank account, they find ways to be contentment with what God has provided. In short, their hearts are entirely in God's hands and no one else's. What's on the inside matches what's on the outside. All their yeses are yeses and all their noes are noes. In the words of David, they do not swear deceitfully. They have good intentions always, and they never do harm. Those are the people that can approach God. Do you see how might this be a problem for us? Do you feel the problem in your heart and in your gut? It's probably even difficult right now to make eye contact with some people because we know what's within us. Psalm 53 verses two and three captures this problem so well. God looks down from the heaven on the, children, on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what is the verdict? They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, Uzzah had the best intentions when he reached out his hand to try to support the ark. But even the purest intentions will burn up before the holy presence of God. So how do we approach God? We need a mediating presence. Yes, God creates out of love, but our sin means we can't get near his presence. Our sin defiles us and must be dealt with. What's interesting is that at the end of 2 Samuel 6, David manages to bring back the ark to Jerusalem, but only when he transport it, transports it in the way that God commands, only when he makes sacrifice for sins. Now eventually, this ark of the covenant ends up in the temple that Solomon will build, but even then, only the priests one time per year can go into the holiest place on behalf of the people. And it's only a matter of time before the impurity of the human heart corrupts even the use of the temple. God's people start to think, how can God be angry at us? We have the temple where he dwells, right over here. Meanwhile, they're worshiping other gods and they're trampling upon the poor. And God saw it all and he allowed that temple to be destroyed. Well, eventually, the people would come back and build another temple. But this was not the temple God had in mind for his people. Now, what they needed and expected was something different, something more than a temple. It was a person. The gospel tells us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the temple veil tore in two, two, and what separated us from God was no more. 
on that holy hill, God dealt with the sin that separates us once and for all. The only one who ever lived with, with clean hands and a pure heart offered his life on the cross for us to save us. Christ, three days later, was raised from the dead and he is the new temple in which God dwells and us with him forever. As far and as wide as God's creative love extends, so does his redemptive love. Christ's holy sacrifice covers the sins of all people, and we who are joined, by him, joined to him by faith are God's temple. God's, uh, Christ's holy and spotless life doesn't consume us. Rather, it cleanses us so that we could stand before the Father. Think about how profound that is. You know we all have rough edges. We all have character defects. And when someone's rough edges and character defects get to us enough, we'll just leave them alone. But God's holy love for us in Christ means he won't leave us alone. And he won't let us stay the same. God will make us what he created us to be. You know, sometimes we judge the sureness of God's promise to make us holy based on how we think we're doing spiritually, don't we? We judge our holiness based on our habits. But what verse five shows us is this, that the ability to stand before God's presence comes from his blessing. Our righteousness comes from the Lord. It is a gift from God which we receive by faith. Now some of you, when you look at yourselves, when I look at myself, we can really wonder, can this gift really be ours? I mean, it feels like our sins will be with us forever. Well, the reality is this, that despite all our defects and rough edges, God will carry us to the finish line. And that's the third lesson we need to learn, is God's victorious power. And that's what we see in verses seven, and ten, seven through 10 here. Would you look down at these verses with me? You see, we move from the setting of God's holy hill to the gates of heaven itself. Not David's gates at Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. These verses are a call and response between those who are within the gates and those who are outside the gates. Verse 7 starts with a call for the gates of heaven to open up so that the king of glory may come in. And then there's a question. Well, who is the king of glory? Sounds very similar to what we heard earlier. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? But this time, we don't get a description of someone's character. We get a name of a person. The person who can enter through the gates is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And then we have the same call and response again, but this time the answer is slightly different. The identity of the person is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. 
David himself was an accomplished military king. He knew what it was like to process through the city gates after a victory. But this king of glory doesn't, press, uh, doesn't process through the gates of Jerusalem, but through the heavenly gates. And he wins the victory, not with army, armies of men, but the heavenly host of God. The closest David ever got to God is when that ark came to Jerusalem. But this victorious king enters into the very place that God dwells. Hebrews 9:24 says this, for Christ has entered not into his holy pl- not into the holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And Revelation describes this king as a mighty warrior. When we see God's holiness and when we see our lack of progress, we can think we're never going to get there. We're never going to get to the finish line. But this picture of Christ as the victorious king who is in the very presence of the Father for, for us shows us that every single thing that opposes our holiness, he will conquer. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. Christ as God in man is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and on earth, and he both gathers and defends his church and subdues all their enemies. Whatever spiritual or physical assaults are upon us, whatever sins we battle against, whether it's with a computer or with the, or with the love of money or with anger or with lust or with anything else, they will never stop us from reaching the very place from God dwells. We will go before the holy presence of God because Jesus Christ has ascended for us. We will join that glorious company of singing that we heard about in Revelation earlier. We will be before God's throne. Do not let your feelings about your own progress or about the circumstances that you see around you put God in a box because this God is victorious. His creative power can do all things. His holy sacrifice for us on the cross will cleanse us. And Christ's resurrection and ascension means he will accomplish everything he intends to do in us and for us. And in just a few minutes, when we take communion, we will be reminded just how this God will accomplish everything he intends to do. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are our King of glory. You are victorious over everything that opposes us. We thank you, Lord, that the strength of our hope, the strength of our faith, is not contingent 
on the strength of your victory. It is sure. Lord, thank you that by faith you call us to yourself. And that because of your great mercy and love, you dwell within us and are always for us. So now, Lord, would you prepare our hearts as we seek to meet with you at the table. In your name we pray. Amen.